and let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come to your word, we ask and pray that you would indeed teach us to number our days and so cause us to walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pressure to conform. Pressure to conform. I have to confess to you all this morning a deeply distressing issue. Uh, an issue that I've been wrestling with for quite a few years now. Slowly but surely, I have been denying my true heritage, my true identity as a British man. Started out in very small ways. After a year or so of living in Malaysia, I suddenly found one day when something would uh, irritate me, just come out of the blue, I wouldn't respond instinctively, oh my goodness, or oh my giddy aunt. <laughs> I, instead, I would say this strange word, ayo, <laughs> ayo. I don't even know what that means, but now I say it when something catches me unawares. But it's, it's getting worse than that. My wife, Melissa, she's asked, she asks me the time, all the time. And I don't know, you ever asked a British person the time? If it's before half past the hour, so right now, yeah, like, uh, like right now, it's 10 past 11. We know that, right? 10 past 11. That's how we'd say it. It's 10 past 11. But if you ask a British person the time and the time is past the half hour mark, well, then I would say something like, it's 20 to 8 or it's quarter to 6. And, and it didn't take long to realize with Melissa, she just didn't understand what I was saying. And so now, the way I even tell the time as a British man has been conformed to the digital clock that we use here in Malaysia. It's, it's no longer quarter to six, it's 5.45 all the time. But things have got even worse than that. In fact, the very worst instances have been documented by Melissa on her Facebook wall. Uh, here's one of them. You know that your British husband is truly Malaysianized when he sends you a text saying that the traffic summons must be paid at the police station. P-O-L-I-S. I think probably it's a sign I'm Malaysianized by the fact I've got a traffic summons in the first place. But spelling it P-O-L-I-S, police, I just didn't even think about it. Just spelled it that way. And then another one. I had no idea how Malaysianized Tim Phillips had become when he told me on this one and off that one when it came to the lights and the fans. So both my spelling and my English grammar in articulation have been corrupted. Now, I mean no offense, I mean no offense to the Malaysians, I, I'm outnumbered certainly, the Malaysians here today who use, I think, this really efficient form of the English language. It's an efficient means of communication. You spell words like they actually sound, police, P-O-L-I-S, but for me, as a British man scored in the ways of English grammar from when I was a small boy, I feel like a traitor now. My allegiance to my true British heritage has waned as I have now adopted the Manglish tongue. And the only thing that brings me relief is that Andy Woodliffe, who was preaching a couple of weeks ago, he's even surpassed me in this issue. He went back to the UK, he was talking to his British man, and he used the la. I still haven't got that yet. And she didn't know what had hit her. 
And he said, la. The pressure to conform to our surrounding culture. That is the big issue at the heart of Daniel that we are beginning to look at this morning. Uh, my Manglish tongue isn't an issue at all, really. It's actually quite useful here. But as Christians living in a culture that mostly denies our Lord, that mostly promotes all people, including us who belong to Him, in living various other ways, in fearing and trusting in other things apart from Him. The pressure to conform is a very real and serious threat. And so the world in which Daniel lived, as we will see, is far closer to the world in which we still live today. In Daniel, we see God's people taken captive by a godless culture. In fact, that's where we begin in verse 1. Come with me to verse 1 of chapter 1, Daniel, page 891 in the small Bible. Sorry, I don't have the page number for the larger one. Okay. Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We start in Daniel on a really low note for Israel. They were God's chosen, special people. He had chosen them out of all the nations of the world, redeemed them from slavery, under cruel foreign masters, and, they, and he had saved them to himself. He had given them his good law by which they alone out of the nations might know his blessing in the land that he gave to them. But as we begin, Daniel, we see all of that undone. Uh, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the great city of Israel, is besieged. And in 589 BC, it fell to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, another power. Uh, God's own city, the stronghold of his people, and yet this tragedy should not have come to them as a surprise. See in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. See, the fall of Jerusalem and the captivity of Israel, as we see here at the beginning of Daniel, uh, we're told without any, uh, any issue whatsoever, this is God's doing. This is what God is doing. The hammer of his judgment has finally fallen on his stubborn people. He had warned for so many centuries, from the very beginning when he first called them to himself and gave them the law, he warned them, look, if you, if you refuse stubbornly to honor me as your redeemer your true God, your provider in all things, well, then you will return to the slavery that I redeemed you from in my grace. And yet, despite this warning for centuries, Israel spurned their Lord. He wore down his patience. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many more, to warn them, look, repent, come back to me. Come back to your Lord and King before it's too late. But they continually, stubbornly refused to listen. Trusted in their city walls. Trusted in adulterous alliances with the kings of other nations rather than their God. 
And so now in Daniel's day, the city of their king, the walls become a ruin. The temple that they trusted in for security is ransacked as this foreign king strips it of all its glory. And so his first action, having defeated God's people, well, it gives them a hint of the culture that they're now going to be dragged into as exiles. Again, carrying on in verse 2. And he brought them, that is the temple vessels, Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar, he takes all the instruments of, of worship from the temple, and he places them in the house of his God, which we're told is in the land of Shinar. Now, the Jews would have known that place. It would have caused them to have their, their hairs on the back stand up on end, as it were, because that was where the Tower of Babel was built. We're told in Genesis. That was where all humanity in the very beginning gathered against God to make a name for ourselves over and against Him. And that idolatrous ideal is what will now dominate the culture which they are being dragged into. Israel being subject to this foreign pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the ways of his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't waste any time. As he seeks to transform God's people according to his own desires. And to do this, he had a system in place. Look in verse 3, and we see Daniel's, as it were, re-indoctrination. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Asphanas, his chief's eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, this is how Nebuchadnezzar plan to make his new Israelite subjects useful, find the best and, and the brightest, both of royal and noble blood, young, attractive, smart adolescents, and bring them into his palace, immerse them in Babylonian culture, put them through this intensive, lengthy, lengthy indoctrination program, and the eye being that once they've been completely transformed mentally, physically, and even spiritually, once they've been remolded in the Babylonian way of life, well, then they'll be willing and able servants of the king. They'll, they'll bring their own wisdom to his table so that he can continue his great conquest. So what did it actually involve? What does this program involve? Look in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Okay, so we look there closely. Firstly, we see they have a new diet. They're to eat the king's food, the food that comes from the king's table. Then, a new education. For three long years, they're going to learn Babylonian language and customs. But before we get to the final, the third measure, let's meet the candidates themselves that Daniel's conserved with in verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. I mean, a large group of high flyers would have been drafted in for this program, but from this point on, the book of Daniel is concerned with the circumstances of just four men. 
that represent God's people. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And yet that, that wasn't how Nebuchadnezzar would know them and refer to them. And that brings us to the final measure of his indoctrination program in verse 7. New Babylonian names. Chief of the units gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now the giving of a new name was really significant in Daniel's day because it implied a transfer in ownership. These men were now, even by name, slaves of Babylon and subjects to a new foreign pagan king. And yet these names imply even more than that, not just a transfer in human allegiance, there's a spiritual dimension as well. Daniel, in Hebrew, it literally means Yahweh is my judge. Yahweh is my judge. But his new name in Babylon, Belteshazzar, that means Bel, the god of Babylon, protect his life. Uh, Daniel's friends, they also had Hebrew names and that expressed fidelity to their true god in Yahweh. Uh, and even though we can't be sure what their new Babylonian names meant, it, it's pretty, we can be pretty sure that one way or another they appealed to lesser Babylonian gods in the place of their former names. See, these guys, they're being reconditioned on every level to be useful to serve and enjoy their new and godless culture. We have a saying, though, back in the UK, you can take the boy out of the village, but you can't take the village out of the boy. That resonates for me. I grew up in a small village in England, so I might live in a big capital city now, but I still think, in many ways, in small village ways. For Daniel, you can take the man out of Israel, but you can't take the Israelite out of the man. Daniel still in his heart loved and feared God, his true God in Yahweh. And he knew that to maintain that true allegiance, he wouldn't conform to every charge laid on him by his new human master. And so we have Daniel's resolution in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. There have been lots of arguments for why Daniel draws his line in the sand here. He takes his new Babylonian name, at least before the king, and there's no sign of resistance for that. Uh, he begins his course of Babylonian learning, those three long years, and you know, he's not worried about being exposed to some new teaching. He simply got to learn it, not believe it in his heart. But what he refuses to accept is probably, in my opinion, the most pleasant of all the three measures to transform him. I think this measure would have our vote in Malaysia. Daniel refuses to eat the king's fine food, to drink his delicious wine. That was Daniel's line in the sand, where he took his stand and would not budge. Now, why might that be? Well, some have suggested it's because of the strict Levitical food laws that we read of earlier in the Old Testament. It's true, God in his law gave his people very clear commands on what they could eat, but more importantly, what they couldn't eat, now that he had saved them to be his holy people set apart for him. But even in the light of that, those laws, it doesn't make sense for Daniel to abstain from the king's wine 
as well as the food, because God's law says nothing about avoiding wine. Others think it's because both the food and the wine would have been used in Babylonian sacrifices before it was actually consumed. But again, it's most likely that that would have applied to nearly all of the food and all of the drink, whatever it might be, in Babylon. And Daniel, in his lengthy exile, did actually eat and did actually drink something. He couldn't order in from Israel. The real issue appears to be the fact that this is the king's food. This is the king's wine from his own table. Now, if we share food with someone today, it doesn't really automatically apply that we have a really close bond with them, does it? I can share food with my wife, Melissa, which normally means I eat all the food, but I can share food with my wife, Melissa, and then share food with a female friend or colleague the following day, and I haven't automatically given off weird signals or broken any strict social conventions. But in Daniel's day, to share food with someone, particularly to share the food of a king, well, that meant a lot more than just sharing the food of a king. It implied an incredibly close bond. It implied allegiance. Allegiance. It was a powerful way of saying to this king, I am your subject. You are my ally. We are of one heart and one mind in your purposes. That's the impression actually we get in Daniel 11 later in the book. Uh, in the midst of a dream that Daniel has, we read in Daniel 11:26, speaking of a king who's betrayed, even those who eat his food shall break him. It seems it was a, an even more scandalous thing to betray a king if you had shared in table fellowship with him. It implied an incredibly close bond. That was a very serious thing to break. And knowing that, Daniel considered eating the king's food to be reprehensible. No way. He knew that by doing that, in his mind, his heart, he would defile himself before his true God, the one who he was truly allegiant to in Yahweh. And so Daniel resolved to say no. But he doesn't start an insurrection. He, he doesn't refuse point blank like one of my kids being difficult at the dinner table. No, verse 8. See how he goes about it. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel is respectful in his protest. He, he seeks permission. He seeks to be polite wherever he can, even as he honors the Lord. We could learn something from that as Christians in this land. And God blesses him in this request. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Because resisting the king's food as a slave, that was no small issue. It simply wasn't the done thing. Resisting any order from the king as a slave, well, that could mean losing your head on the spot. But even though God in his grace, as it were, gives Daniel the eunuch's ear, he's willing to listen to this objection, he's still not very keen to comply with it. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, 
who assigned your food and your drink? For, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. See, Daniel is this guy's responsibility, and the king's food, tainted though it was, was still very, very good food, really nutritious. So if Daniel was that much leaner than the other slaves, this eunuch was going to lose his head. So if anything, this is a gentle, uh, okay, Daniel, but no. You just eat the food that you've been given. Be a good slave. Now, I wonder what we would have done in Daniel's shoes at that point. I wonder what I would have done. Resolved to honor God. We know what's right. We're going to refuse the king's food. But now, some pushback. Now we're meeting some resistance. Maybe we would have started backpedaling a bit. We started rationalizing in our minds. Oh, you know, well, you can't say I didn't try, God. You know, I've got to eat something. And, you know, this guy might lose his head if I don't. Oh, it's clearly the safe thing to do. I know you understand, right? Daniel doesn't blink for a minute. He was wise. He knew to expect some kind of resistance. And his heart was where it should be. Fearing the Lord above all. And so he steps out instead in faith. He doesn't backpedal. We see incredible faith. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel's really putting himself and his friends on the line here. Uh, He tells uh, the steward under the chief of eunuchs, well, what about this then? Just switch the, the king's really nutritious food and give us nothing but vegetables and water for 10 days. That's what we'll have. Three squares a day, vegetables and water for 10 days straight. And then he says, basically, then you can do with me and my friends however you wish. Test us. Now, that doesn't mean Daniel's going to give up on his decision. It doesn't mean he's going to take the king's food if he fails the test after 10 days. Daniel's resolved in his heart to fear God. So he will continue to resist, but he gives permission. Say, look, just do whatever you want with us after 10 days. End our lives if you want. And Daniel had no assurance. There is no sign in these verses that he knew that God would graciously preserve him. Daniel didn't know he was going to pass this test. God didn't speak into Daniel's ear and just say, hey, tell, tell the unit there, tell, tell him you're going to eat veggies for 10 days straight. And just wait for the look on his face when I bring you through. But Daniel didn't have any guarantees. He just trusted God. He honored God. He trusted that God would be faithful to deliver his servant. 10 days pass, nothing but vegetables and water, absolute torture. And when the test is over, we see Daniel's deliverance. Verse 15. The end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. More torture. But God faithfully preserved Daniel 
and his friends. No harm came to them for refusing to eat the king's food in honor of their Lord. Now, does that mean for us as God's people today, we can expect the same in every situation? We, we step out in faith. We do what Daniel does, and God's going to keep our bodies healthy and strong and buff, no matter what. Friends, we've got to remember Daniel lived in a different situation to us as God's people. He was an Israelite in exile, subjugated under a foreign king. He was a slave being compelled to deliberately violate his covenant with God by the law. So this is how we don't apply these verses. Fasting in the Bible. How to diet like Daniel did. Diet like Daniel and know God's blessings of a healthy life. Now, there is nothing wrong with going on a diet. Also, I've been told, as I think you can probably tell, it's not really my kind of thing. But diets are fine. Becoming a vegetarian for health reasons is fine. What's not fine is using this text in Scripture to give the impression that if we fast like Daniel, if we adopt his diet, that's going to be a guarantee from God that he will bless us with abundant physical health. That's not the point of these verses. This miraculous deliverance that only God could perform in sustaining Daniel and his friends on nothing but vegetables of water over 10 days while all of his peers were eating steak and rice, it shows the majesty of God's sovereign power in a specific moment in biblical history to sustain to deliver his people no matter who might be opposing them. Do you see what's happening here? Nebuchadnezzar, this proud, arrogant, powerful king, with all of his resources, with his great indoctrination program, who sought to conform Daniel and his friends in his own fallen image, break their loyalty to God, that they might be his own in every way. But as Daniel fears the Lord and stands firm in love for him, God works to preserve him in a way that totally undermines Nebuchadnezzar. Shows us just how little in control he actually is. He doesn't even know what's happened. He doesn't know that Daniel and his friends have refused to swear close personal loyalty to him. He doesn't know that they've refused the food from his table. All he can see before him are four great, strong, handsome, buff men. They look even better than their contemporaries. Not only do they look better, they sound much better as well. See verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We'll see how important that is later in the book. Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters that were all in his kingdom. See, God got his servants exactly where he purposed them to be. Nebuchadnezzar's own court advising him with greater skill than all the rest. And see how the passage ends. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. See, Nebuchadnezzar's reign may have been impressive by human standards. It certainly was. But in the light of history, it was 
a brief span. Daniel as God's servant outlived this king to witness the rise of another king, the Persian king Cyrus, the very king who conquers Babylon. Uh, The king who will free Daniel and his friends and allow them to return to the land. The king that will return the very objects of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar stole and return them to the temple. You see Daniel's wisdom? He's entrusted himself to the God who holds the will of kings in his hands, who determines the course of history. He promised, even before, you will return. I will bless you. I will keep you. I will never abandon you. All they needed to do was remain faithful to God during the time of their exile, and that's exactly what Daniel does. In that sense, he points us forward to God's greatest servant, the one who at such great cost refused to compromise And instead feared and loved his heavenly Father with his every breath. Never broke allegiance. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That put him on the wrong side of many earthly rulers. Many Nebuchadnezzars. Seeking their own glory away from God. From religious leaders. Seeking their glory from the people that they were supposedly serving. And yet not once when he was pushed. Even when he was beaten. Did Christ compromise. He loved God, and he loved his neighbor from the heart, as I and all of us have failed to do. And by doing so, he exposed the hypocrisy of those who taught God's law, but refused to keep it. He showed up our hearts for what they are really like, that we are sinners, that we are hopelessly turned against God, that we are constantly compromising ourselves in what should be a pure worship to him as our creator and king. We are those in desperate need of a salvation that we can never achieve in our own strength, and yet Jesus, praise God, remained faithful. Jesus alone practiced what he preached, and ultimately it cost him his life. And for a time, much like Nebuchadnezzar with Israel, the world thought it had destroyed God's king in Christ. And yet, just as in Daniel, God was sovereignly, silently working, achieving his awesome purposes through his faithful servant, giving Jesus to die at the hand of sinners, only to rise again, so that we sinners who trust on him might be forgiven, might be cleansed of our every compromise that we have willfully made in going astray rather than honoring our God. God raised his son, a picture of the new life that is ours in him. And because he's raised, that means we now know without a doubt who will win. That just like Nebuchadnezzar, our world in sin has an expiration date. It will fade away. That Christ will return. He will save, he will judge, and he will make all things new. And we as his people, as we wait for that day, like Daniel, it's our duty and our joy in what is, as it were, a time of exile. As sojourners in a foreign land, the world in which we still live, to submit our lives and rejoice in him. By his spirit to live those lives he saved us, to live holy for him. 
His witnesses showing to our world that we belong to Him, that Jesus is better than the idols that our world trusts in today. But we know, don't we? It's not easy. God's people in a foreign land. You know, Daniel lived in a world that tried to conform him to its own desires, and it's no different for us. A world that's addicted to defying God, living for self, worshipping the things of this creation. Who will we resolve to serve this coming week? Maybe you're a student here in Malaysia, and from my limited experience, it seems cheating is a rampant issue. You know, perhaps right now you're being tempted by other classmates just to get that one step ahead because you know in many, in many uh, instances, sadly, the exams aren't fair, that some are privileged above the others, that the grades aren't objective. It's just the way our society works. So just go with the flow. Disown Christ by cheating. Maybe we're a worker who travels overseas often, away from the family, away from a healthy Christian influence. And, and one story that I keep on hearing as a pastor is how those trips in particular can be a source of great temptation to compromise. You know, during the day overseas, you're so busy with meetings and serving clients and making deals, and in the evening, everyone's exhausted. You just want to go out and have a good time and have a rest with your fellow colleagues. You're in a new city. They want to check out the nightlife, and you start in a bar, but you know where it's heading you know it's going to be humiliating when you tell them, I'm not going to go to that strip club. I'm not going to go to that brothel. Might even set you back in your job. So tempting to just go with the flow as the, West, as the rest of our society does. Maybe we're just struggling to honor Christ with our words. Friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, they love a bit of gossip. So much of their conversation turns on berating others and speaking in cruel and unfair ways. And, and the media and the magazines, they just promote us in it every day. Look at what they've done. Look at what they're doing. We can so easily become attuned to it if we don't guard ourselves by this word. Desiring to speak God's truth in love in the face of lies spoken in malice. You see, friends, the decisions that we make in our small everyday situations over the course of our lives will reveal who we truly fear and who we truly love in our hearts, in those everyday decisions. When disobedience to Christ is most convenient and when obedience to Christ is most inconvenient, what we do in those moments reveals the true allegiance of our heart. Do we belong to Christ or the world that resists him as king? You know, one Anglican minister once said wisely, if we marry the spirit of this age, we will be a widow in the next. If we marry the spirit of this age, we will be a widow in the next. Where you're tempted to compromise, remember Daniel. He stood firm. It was difficult, but he resolved to love God from his heart. It was a great risk to his own security, but he was preserved. And we have an even greater promise as Christians. As we trust on Christ and live for him, that whether in life or even in death, we are held in the arms 
of our Heavenly Father who gave his own Son to die that we might not perish. And so, yes, we may suffer for a time as we stand for Christ our King, as we witness for him in a culture that refuses to acknowledge him. But just as it was for Daniel, the dawn will come. And the only words that will matter on that day will be, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So brothers and sisters, resolve to love and fear the Lord in the light of the great grace to us he's shown in his son. In the greater grace we will see and know for sure in the light of Christ's resurrection. Resolve to be the holy people that God has saved us to be, that our world might see and repent. And so rejoice with us on that final day when we are delivered in every way. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the way in which we see in just the start of the story of Daniel how you are the sovereign God and you hold the will of kings in your hands. You determine the course of history. We thank you for this example of Daniel's faithfulness that points us forward to the even greater faithfulness of your Son in whom we are saved. And we thank you that though we are guilty in so many ways of compromise, our sins have been cleansed by his blood. But, Father, I pray that for us here this morning, in the light of what we've seen, we would not be short-sighted. That you would teach us to number our days that we would have wise hearts that above all fear you, the God of our salvation. It can be so hard when we are in that moment. Prepare us, strengthen us, and help us to encourage one another to remain faithful, to rejoice in Christ who is better by far, that we indeed would be showing ourselves to be your people of your kingdom to come that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Commit us into your hands, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.